Welcome back to the Eastside Unified Housing Justice Podcast. My name is Hillary and I'm the producer of this show. This month, we're talking about racial housing covenants, what they are, how they came to be, and how they might affect the Twin Cities today. I also spoke with Maria Cisneros, founder of the organization Just Deeds, which works to help people legally disavow racial covenants. It's a really interesting topic, so let's dive in. When you walk down the streets of the Twin Cities, there's a lot to take in. Buses and cars carrying friends and families where they need to go, bustling restaurants and coffee shops, storefronts and museums. There are countless communities sharing space in houses, duplexes, apartment buildings, and more. But what you don't see as plainly when you open Google Maps or climb into a car is the language and legal documents that have shaped the cities. One often forgotten piece of history that has had lasting effects on the communities and spaces of the Twin Cities is the existence and legacy of racial housing covenants in Minnesota. America often looks to the Jim Crow era South as the prime example of segregation in our country, but Midwestern states have their own troubled history of segregation and racial housing covenants are a large part of that history. Also known as restrictive covenants, they are clauses in property deeds that forbid non-white people of different races and ethnicities from buying, selling, leasing, occupying, renting, or inheriting specific properties. Physical spaces and communities have always been fluid. Before racial covenants came into fashion, Minnesota wasn't as severely segregated, and -and up-and-coming majority black neighborhoods were forming. This changed when majority white neighborhoods realized that black families were moving into nearby properties. White residents began threatening and enacting violence and terror against the people of color moving in, which resulted in increasingly racially divided neighborhoods. Then, in 1910, restrictive covenants hardened racialized boundaries in Minnesota. In 1910, the earliest known covenant in Minneapolis was enacted when Henry and Leonora Scott sold a home with a deed forbidding anyone of Chinese, Japanese, Turkish, Black, Mongolian, or African descent to purchase, mortgage, or lease their property. This deed was written by Edmund G. Walton, a private real estate developer who worked largely in the Lowry Hills and Linden Hills neighborhoods. What started as one deed grew to at least 26,000 deeds in Minneapolis alone, and all of the covenants included language that specifically targeted Black people. these exclusionary policies were being written into deeds until at least the 1950s. Why did racial covenants gain so much traction? As private contracts between individuals that allowed people to dictate who they would sell their property to, racial covenants were an accepted way for white communities to systematically create and maintain white-only spaces, often pushing people of color into substandard housing and living conditions. They also helped set the stage for federal redlining, a practice where the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, assigned different neighborhoods different grades, literally using red pens to circle the neighborhoods deemed undesirable. The FHA, a government organization, was founded in 1934 as a way to help working-class families buy homes by underwriting their mortgages. Under FHA redlining regulations, neighborhoods were separated into four different color-coded categories. Red meant hazardous, yellow meant definitely declining, blue meant still desirable, and green meant best. The FHA refused to give a neighborhood a green designation unless restrictive covenants were already in place. What made a neighborhood desirable or undesirable to the FHA? This distinction was defined by the concentration of people of color, particularly black folks, in a neighborhood. While there was no evidence that people of color would be more likely to default on their loans and therefore be so-called undesirable loan recipients, the FHA had no problem linking race and space. These housing policies led to increased segregation across St. Paul. In the same period as racial housing covenants and redlining really took off, 
off. U.S. Census data shows that the share of Ramsey County residents who had a neighbor of a different race decreased every decade from 1910 to 1940, showing that segregation was really taking hold. Aside from redlining maps, the Twin Cities also had slum maps, sometimes called natural area maps, which labeled white neighborhoods as working men's homes and non-white neighborhoods as slums. These maps explicitly labeled neighborhoods using the ethnicities and races of non-white communities, but never labeled white neighborhoods as explicitly white. In this way, these maps contributed to the perception that whiteness was the norm and non-whiteness was the other that needed to be pointed out. By inscribing maps with these labels, the developers of the Twin Cities made racist separatist ideology physical and real. In the 1940s, the NAACP launched a campaign against the Covenants, recognizing what a racist and destructive force they were in shaping American life. In 1948, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Covenants were unenforceable in the Shelley versus Kramer case, where the Shelleys, a black family in St. Louis, were sued for buying a house that had a racial covenant. Fortunately, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Shelleys. But despite this 1948 ruling, Minnesota legislature didn't officially prohibit the use of racial language in deeds until 1953. And even following these two decisions, racial covenants were still being used until 1968, when the Federal Fair Housing Act was passed and explicitly made them illegal. A lot of what we know about racial covenants in Minnesota has been made possible by the Mapping the Prejudice Initiative, a project started by the University of Minnesota in 2016. The initiative has brought together historians, geographers, librarians, and community activists to map and display all of the racially covenanted properties in Hennepin and Ramsey County. The initiative has played a key role in raising awareness of and access to data about covenants. While Mapping the Prejudice initially focused on mapping prejudice in Minneapolis, its sister program, run by the University of St. Kate's in St. Paul, called Welcoming the Dear Neighbor, is in the process of finding and mapping all of the covenants in Ramsey County. You might be wondering, since racial covenants are no longer enforceable or legal, why should we continue to care about them? That's a great question, and I spoke with Maria Cisneros, founder of Just Deeds, to talk about why. Would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Maria Cisneros. I'm the city attorney for the city of Golden Valley, and I'm also a co-founder of the Just Deeds Coalition. We started this coalition. It's kind of a grassroots effort that tries to bring folks together from a variety of different industries, including lawyers, real estate professionals, local government officials, to talk about the issue of racially restrictive covenants and to collectively acknowledge our industry's involvement in the practice of using racially restrictive covenants to create segregated communities. And so I got started on this work in my role as city attorney in Golden Valley. I actually found a racially restrictive covenant on my house when my husband and I bought a house in Golden Valley in 2017. And then in 2019, the Minnesota legislature passed a law that allows people to discharge those covenants by filing a form with the county. And so my husband and I went through that process and figured out that it's it's not really a super user-friendly process and that people could use help from attorneys to be able to discharge covenants on their own homes. And so we worked with the Golden Valley Human Rights Commission to set up a system where we could give people pro bono attorney help to do the discharges. And then at the same time, I was on the board of the Minnesota Association for City, of City Attorneys, MACA for short. And this was in early, let's see, well, it was right around the time that George Floyd was murdered. And so as a board, 
the city attorneys association board, we were looking for ways to educate our community members about systemic racism. And so part of what we were doing was creating a CLE series, continuing legal education series for city attorneys about systemic racism and about racism and policing. And then we also decided at that point to get MACA involved in Just Deeds as one of the founding partners. And so the city attorneys association also joined MACA. And then we hooked up with, and then we hooked up with Mapping Prejudice, Edina Realty Title, and Minneapolis area realtors. And those are the founding members. And we've just been kind of building this ship as we fly it (laughs) because we did kind of underestimate all of the amazing conversations and interests that would happen when we started Just Deeds, partially because, and I'm on a tangent right now, but because um, it just seems like when people see the maps that Mapping Prejudice has created, it really resonates because those maps and the images you see on the maps really mirror what people's understandings of our built environment are. And they just kind of reinforce what people already know to be true about who lives where and what access to opportunities and resources they have. So it's been really amazing to watch people respond to to this project and get involved and just kind of you know, take the plane in different directions. So you said you discovered a covenant in your own housing paperwork, and that kind of is what got you involved in restrictive covenants. And I was wondering if you could just speak a little more to what that experience was like, you know, emotionally and also, yeah, all the logistical paperwork and complications of that. It was a very interesting experience for a number of reasons. So first of all, I grew up in this area. My husband and I own a home in Golden Valley, which is the city that I work for. But before I worked for the city, I lived in Golden Valley. And even before I lived in Golden Valley, I came here all the time growing up. I lived in Robbinsdale, which is next door. That's where I grew up. And then I lived in Minneapolis for a while and then moved, had a bunch of kids and moved to the suburbs (laughs) and moved to Golden Valley. But my grandparents live a mile away from where I bought, my husband and I bought our home. My dad grew up in Golden Valley and I grew up next door and was, and came here all the time. And so I've always kind of lived on the inner ring suburbs, um, bordering North Minneapolis. And I also identify as a white cisgender woman. So that's kind of just my orientation coming to this topic was that the systems that have been built really were built to benefit me. And so I didn't, I hadn't spent a ton of time thinking deeply about them in the beginning of my life, I guess I should say. And then I married my husband. He's Latin American immigrant. He's from Venezuela. He's Afro-Latino. And so he and I have been married for 15 years. We have four mixed race kids. And so then I started to have new experiences with all sorts of systems in the Minneapolis, St. Paul area through, you know, being married to somebody who is tall, dark, and handsome and has an accent. (laughs) Um, And when we found the covenant, it kind of just brought all of that together. It was like a lot of these experiences kind of coalescing into like, oh, here's an example of a purposeful structure that has made all of these experiences possible, both good and bad experiences. And so it was an opportunity for us to stop and think about, for example, how our family's access to opportunities and resources may have been different if we had been buying or trying to buy this property at the time that my grandparents were buying their property a mile away, meaning we wouldn't have been able to live here. And so our kids wouldn't have had access to 
the same schools, the same parks, all of the things that my dad and his siblings had access to growing up and that I had access to. Uh, when I found the covenant, I immediately showed it to my husband. And I actually just like kind of found it on accident because it was listed as a link in our title documents. So no one really pointed it out to me. And I just, I'm a huge nerd. So I read every, every document that we got uh, when we bought the house. And so I, I kind of found it on accident and I showed it to my husband and we were just like, first didn't really kind of know how to react. Like what in the world? And then started thinking more deeply about it. And, and the next phase was kind of like, do we want to buy this house? Like, what does this mean for this neighborhood? Do we want to live in this neighborhood? And honestly, I don't know if I hadn't been from this area, I don't know if we would have still bought the house. But because I'm from here and one of the reasons we we're buying this house is to be close to family, we did still end up buying the house. But it has put kind of a new, a new spin on living here because you know we have some experiences like people spray painting things on our driveway or cutting wires in our backyard and it's kind of makes you wonder like you know are these things connected or and are the attitudes and beliefs that were part of the creating the system of racially restrictive covenants how strongly are those attitudes and beliefs still felt by the people who live here because there are people who live here who've lived here since the neighborhood was built. So it, you know, it just has kind of caused us to pause and like, think about how welcome are we in this community? But we definitely felt like it was really important after discovering this to talk to our friends and neighbors about it and to get more information, to really understand how pervasive it was. And if these attitudes and beliefs do still exist, what can we do to break them down so that others don't experience the same kind of exclusion that are that my husband's ancestors would have experienced had they been trying to live here during the time these were legal. They're no longer enforceable, but why do they still matter? And why do people like you and the Justice Organization need to and want to raise awareness? Yeah, this is a really great question. And I'm really happy you asked it. Everybody interacts with this topic differently. And there's no like right or wrong way to, to interact with the topic. But, you know, one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of people with a similar background to me, so a lot of people from Minnesota who are white Minnesotans haven't heard about racially restrictive covenants and don't know that this, this practice existed, which is kind of, for me, it was, it was surprising that I didn't know more about it. I knew about racially restrictive covenants generally, and I grew up in a family of attorneys and a family of people who were very involved in local government, elected officials. And we've been kind of in the same area for many generations, three, four generations. So I was surprised that of all people, I had never heard of this. And if I had never heard of it, there must be many other people who've also never heard of it. And then when I started researching more and seeing all of the different maps that Mapping Prejudice has created, and then overlaying those maps with other maps that show disparities, like environmental disparities, access to food, access to jobs, access to transportation, access to quality education. Um, you can just see that all of the connections between this topic and others. And so we think it's really important to have those discussions so that people know that where people live and what access they have to resources and opportunities was purposeful. And it was, it's in writing and it's very explicit what the intent behind these covenants were. And a lot of people find that surprising because we don't collectively have those conversations a lot in the United States 
about how purposeful the housing segregation we're experiencing now and the dis disparities in home ownership and those kinds of things, how purposeful all of that really was. So that's a really important conversation to have. The Met Council has a report, um, I think it's called Reimagining, I might Google it as we're talking, Reimagining Areas of Concentrated Poverty. And they talk about how important it is for us to to reframe how we talk about concentrations of poverty or how we talk about the educa education gap or home ownership gap, not as deficiencies in the populations that are experiencing the gap, but as re the result, the predictable result of a purposeful structure that was put in place. And in this case, both by private actors and government. And when we look back at, at how purposefully it was done and what tools were used, then we can learn about how to avoid it going forward. So that's really kind of the main goal in having these discussions. I work in local government. And so obviously I want to make sure that all of the decisions that the government system I work for is making, that all of the, de the decision makers have access to this information so that they can consider it as they make policies going forward, because hopefully they'll make better policies if they have all of the information available to them. The other thing to mention, given what's going on in other areas of the law at a national level right now, I bears mentioning that it's always possible things could change legally and that covenants could become enforceable again. The chances of that, especially when we started this project over two years ago, seemed very low, but legal scholars have pointed out to me that you should probably not underestimate that and that by discharging these covenants, you remove any possibility that uh, they could ever be legally enforceable again. That's bringing up a couple of things for me. One, could you explain what discharging a covenant is and maybe how people can approach discharging covenants from their deeds? In Minnesota, there are two types of title categories and the discharge process looks a little bit different in each of them. So the first one is abstract. To discharge a covenant on an abstract property, you essentially fill out a, um, an affidavit that the state produced, the legislature determined in the, in the bill that it passed allowing discharges what the document had to say. And um, you can see a copy of the document on the county recorder's website or by going to the justice website, but it essentially just disavows the covenant. So it doesn't remove the covenant from the property record. The, it doesn't delete anything, but it adds a piece of paper to the record um, that disavows the covenant. And people usually need some sort of help or legal help going through that process because the document requires you to know the document number of the original deed that had the racially restrictive covenant. Sometimes it can be kind of tricky to find those in the county recording system. And then there's just some other, you have to fill out the legal description and all that kind of stuff. So our pro bono attorneys help people find that original covenant document and then they help people fill out the form. And then the last step is you have to have it signed and notarized and you have to file the original form with the county recorder's office. So we help with all of those things. You can do it on your own if you're super motivated, but if you, if you need help, that's what Just Deeds helps people do. 
The other type of property is Torrens property. And that's basically like the title for the property is registered. And so you get a certificate of title, much like a certificate of title for a car. And the concept is that anything that's not shown on the certificate of title is not legally, it doesn't really legally matter for the property. So sometimes we have people who contact us and who want to discharge a covenant, their property is Torrens. And even though their property did at one point have a racially restrictive covenant, the examiner of titles has already purged that from the legally enforceable documents that are relevant to the property. So sometimes we just help people who own Torrance property find the covenant and then we explain to them that it's no longer mentioned on their certificate of title. And then other times it is mentioned on the certificate of title and this was the case for my property but the document that it's in it will always be mentioned on the certificate of title because it has other kinds of document or other kinds of covenants associated with it. In my case, the document had a bunch of different things like the property has to be a single family home. It has to have an attached garage. It has to, you can't have that noxious business. And then it had the racially restrictive covenant. And then it had an easement, a drainage and utility easement in favor of the city. So the drainage and utility easement is always going to be enforceable and always needs to be mentioned on the certificate of title. But all of those other things are no longer enforceable, especially the racially restrictive covenant. So in my case, we just I sent an email to the examiner's office and they put a note on my certificate of title that says this document, only the drainage and utility easement is enforceable. All the other covenants are not. So it's a little bit different process depending on on what kind of property you have. So it sounds a little complicated <laughs> and definitely just yeah. deeds is <laughs> the process wrong. How can community members who, you know, don't know that they have deeds or just are kind of curious about racial covenants in their own paperwork and own leases, like how can they get involved in, and learn more about racial covenants? So the first thing people can do is visit justdeeds.org and check out our website and then also look at Mapping Prejudice's website. I think in Ramsey County, we're still in the learning phase about, first of all, about where all the covenants were and what the history behind those covenants was. But I think also in Ramsey County, there are some stories to uncover about areas that we might we might have thought there were racial covenants because we know that they're pretty segregated areas but there weren't, or we haven't found them yet. And kind of what is the story behind all of that? Because racial covenants were one tool that the private market and then later government used to reinforce racial segregation and housing. But there were other tools that were used too. And which tool was used depended on a lot of things. It depended on like the time period of when an area was developed. And it depended on a lot of social factors that were also happening in all of these spaces at the time. And so Mapping Prejudice is starting to do some more work looking into things, other kinds of tools, for instance, white violence that might have been used to keep people out of certain neighborhoods. And one really powerful thing that folks could do is to kind of follow along with that research on Mapping Prejudice and, and participate in that telling Mapping Prejudice's researchers about what they know about these spaces in Ramsey County and sharing any kind of narrative data or stories, family stories that people have about these spaces. Because I know for me, my family's been in Hennepin County for four generations. And so 
I have a lot of stories and like my grandma's 93 and she's still living and she has a lot of things she's shared with me about the history of this, this place that really overlap and kind of help to explain some of the racially restrictive covenant data. And so I think that would be one of the most powerful ways that people can get involved. And then we have on our website too, there's a get involved tab. And depending on your role, if you're an attorney, we're at really need attorneys to help discharge covenants in Ramsey County. We provide all the training. And if you don't have malpractice insurance, we can help help get that too through the Volunteer Lawyers Network. If you work for a local, a local unit of government, we would love to have you or your unit of government participate as well. And we also have a neighborhood toolkit. So if maybe you just feel compelled to start having these discussions with your family members or your neighbors or whoever, we have some resources on there for people to prepare to have those conversations. Um, and we are, we're always ha- happy to come give talks and, and help people think through how they want to, how they want to participate. Ultimately, it's intended to be a build your own adventure because again, these covenants have affected places differently. And so people start to figure out like, okay, this is the right way for me to engage with this. And we just want to provide whatever tools and support we can to help people engage in whatever way they think is, is the right way for their community. Thank you so much to Maria for speaking with me. And I hope you enjoyed learning more about racial covenants and how you can get involved. Do you want to learn more about St. Paul community members and different housing justice issues? Subscribe to this podcast and to our monthly Eastside Unified Housing Justice newsletter to learn more about how you can get involved. Our show notes include a subscription link so you won't miss the next newsletter.